I wonder if you've ever been told to shut up and listen. Maybe not always with those exact words. People see passages like our passage today, and they, and they feel like that is what's being told to them. They see this passage as, as like a hammer that may hit the nail or it may miss, but it damages something and it's missed. They think this passage comes across as someone saying, sit down, shut up. And I get that, but that's not how this passage is actually written at all. I hope that you'll see this passage, these two verses, as a word from God coming to you to help you so that you can enjoy God. There's a a personality of people who are urgent in their helpfulness. Some, when it comes to very tense times, go crazy. You know, I've learned uh, since having a kid six weeks ago that in the very early hours of the night, I become completely irrational. (laughs) Things that are small seem so big. Things that seem so little seem so monstrous. But then there are are people in your lives, I would hope, that that can give you a confident sense of comfort even as they urge you to not do something. I had a friend, I was on a pastor retreat a couple of years ago, who was talking, he was giving all of us unsolicited financial advice. And you're like, we're all pastors here. We're not to be financial experts. Stop talking to us. And, and, and someone said something ridiculous financially. And, and he leaned over the boat and he looked, and this guy's like six foot seven, just a monster. And he looks over and he says, brother, please don't do that. And there was this sense of like, I'm going to follow whatever that guy said because there was this kindness and urgency in this desire of, brother, please don't do that. That, I think, is really the tone and the tension of this passage where, where the commands that we read in Scripture, we often feel like they are coming at us harshly or with harshness. It sounds like someone is saying, shut up and listen. But I think to really grasp what Paul is teaching to Timothy and in reality, what what Christ is teaching to us through these words, I think we have to understand the heart behind the one who speaks these words. That changes everything. Knowing the heart behind someone who talks to you, it it helps rebalance your emotions according to, to what the truth that they're saying to you is all about. So in our passage today, God is going to talk to us about women and how women should adorn themselves because how women act matters. God is going to talk to women and say, you should act like this because because who you are matters. How you act matters. How women behave matters because women matter and how women behave matters. Because there's a world out there, think of this, all of us in the context of seeing ourselves in this building, there is a world out there, Paul is telling Timothy, that is so lost, so gone, and the gospel is so necessary for them to hear that there is no time to confuse people on what the gospel actually looks like. And we can mess that up. We saw this last week, men, how we can behave, that misconstrue how the gospel could be understood because we act a certain way and we shouldn't do that. In the same way, he's going to give encouraging words to these women. Same for women here. Now, in verses 8, there was instruction for men. In verses 9 through 10, God says how women should adorn themselves. And next week, verses 11 through 15, God willing, God will say, how women are to listen in the context of the local church. Both things, today, how they should adorn themselves, next week, how they should listen in the church. Both things are actually for the sake of the gospel's clarity toward the world who is watching and listening. You and I can act in such a way that people from the outside might see our gospel 
as just another realm of chaos like a traffic jam in the world. Or they can see us acting and operating in a certain way to where they go, there's something different about those people there. The Bible tells men how to behave. The Bible tells women how to behave. The Bible says that godly men ought to act like godly men and godly women ought to act like godly women. Why? Well, our passage from God's Word is in the midst of Paul instructing us how we are to worship. How we worship demonstrates not only the God who we worship, but it also demonstrates to a watching world the the quality and the overwhelming, spiritually guiding character of that God. Paul's aim is that men who act like holy men would bring glory to God, and women who act like holy women would bring glory to God. So he identifies and explains, and he'll ground some of this instruction uh, for them, the first audience, but also for us even today. So before I go into a little bit of exegesis, I want to address how the whole of scriptures actually teach about God's heart for us. I think it's before we get into the, the, the little points, the fine the fine points of this text, I think it's good for us to take a step back and actually talk about, or me talk to you about, how God actually views women in general and specifically. The Bible begins with God creating all of us, humans, including women, in his very image. He makes man first out of the dirt, and then he makes woman second out of the side of the man. He he creates woman that way. She's different, we all know, It's being confused by the world around us, but women are different than men. She's different, but it's very clear from the scriptures that they are both equally made. Both men and women are equally made in God's image. They're not equally made like one another. They're not equally made in what they're given the role to do, but they're equally made in how God sees them. He sees them as an image of himself. Now, there's an enemy at play right at the beginning of the scriptures where Satan, you got to remember from the very beginning, sought to destroy and kill God's glory, and he does this by first attacking the order of creation. It was God who created man, and from man, God made woman, and it was then, at that point, of who Satan sought after to defeat the order and ultimately aiming to try to topple God. He went after the woman first. We're the ultimate source of Everything awful is from Satan, the arch enemy of God. So if man is to lead his wife, Satan is going to be there to seek to make man a passive, wimpy man. And if a wife is to submit to and to love her husband, Satan will seek to have her dominate her man. Satan's behind every effort to entice women away from the beauty of being a God-fearing woman, and he wants to take the roles given to her in the family, and society, and the church, and he wants to destroy them. He wants to act satanically, and this is not new in our day. We see it all the way rooted at the very beginning of the scriptures. And yet, throughout scripture, you hear of God's unique heart for women. So you've got God creating woman in his likeness, and you've got Satan attacking woman, trying to confuse her, trying to misconstrue what she's been given the role to do. But then you have, bit by bit, along the way, God actually giving, showing us his unique heart for women. Women who are sometimes overlooked or pushed to the fringe, it is God the one who says, no, that's not right. My heart is for the fatherless. It's God who says, my heart is for the widow, the woman who feels like nobody sees her. It's the scriptures about God who says that God sees her, the one who is barren, because God can rejoice or the woman can rejoice because she has all of his love when god takes to himself flesh and comes to his created world he goes out of 
the world's way to make certain women who might have been pushed to the side or pushed to the wide side by society actually core to what he is doing, where he valued them. You think of the older Baron Elizabeth, or you think of the young maiden Mary, or you think of Jesus interacting with the sin-hardened Samaritan woman at the well or the prostitute. Either way, he's always opening up his heart wide to women in need. In the same way that he's opening up his heart to all who are in need. He doesn't skip over a woman. His heart is for them to come to himself as well. That's, that's God's heart. Women, that's God's heart for you. How do you think God views you and looks at you? It's the same God in the scriptures who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, not second place, not, not a certain role that you can't achieve, but I'll give you rest because my yoke is easy. So the things that alienate us from the Father, it is Jesus who comes to restore all of us. And it's at that point when he went to the cross and where he took our guilt and he absorbed the penalty that we deserve and he even suffered the consequences that we deserved upon himself so that we could be forgiven and restored to complete relationship with our Father so that you and I, man and woman, can have eternity with him as he promises. That's how much God loves his people. That's equally how much God loves his women. That's how he views us. So whatever command, here we go to the next couple of points, whatever command that you may read, that you find hard to read, you got to hear it as coming from the heart of a loving God, an all-knowing, all-wise, all-good heart. So think of it. You've probably had someone in your life who you, can say, who, who you allow to say whatever you want to you because you know that they love you. All of us have a friend like that or maybe a parent like that or maybe we've become that to our parents. Doubtful. But we all have that person who they can say anything to us. Why? Not because they're all wise, not because they have all the answers, but because at their root, they actually love us and the progress that we might make in life. And I think that's how we should view God when he speaks to us, that his wrath isn't being poured out through these words, through verses 9 through 10, but actually it's his love that's instructing you. So that, I think that's an important backdrop to have as we go into the text. So I want to take the next couple of points, uh, if you're using an outline, as points 2, 3, and 4, to answer the question, what is God telling women to do? What is God telling women to not do? And then why is God telling women to do something and not do something else? What is the point of all that? Is it just rules? So second, what worshiping women should do. God wants Christian women to take their stand against everything associated with sexual immorality as well as material luxury. That's what God is teaching you women in this text. He wants you to take a stand. He wants you to go on offense and actually take a stand against everything associated with sexual immorality as well as material luxury. In Ephesus, which is the, the setting and the context of this passage, in Ephesus, the way that women dress demonstrated the difference between purity and adultery. Those were the two sides that people were encouraged to take or that they were falling into. That there is a dividing line between purity of heart and adultery of the flesh. And in part, Paul is telling women not to come to church dressed like prostitutes. If you take all these words and you find out their definitions and you, you go into the cultural settings, what he's looking at women and he's saying is, hey, Timothy, tell the women of this church not to dress like prostitutes if they worship the God that they say they worship. That attire was completely unsuitable for worship. 
But the apostle was not simply telling women what not to wear. He was also telling women what to wear and how to wear it. Words like modesty, respectability, self-control, and proper all, all show these positive virtues. Now, when it comes to respectability, the, the word that's in this text, it's a form of humility. He's telling them to adorn themselves as someone who is modeling humility to a watching world, which is truly the appropriate attitude for prayer. It's why, and I'm not saying you have to do this, but it's why you might, when praying, put your hands together. Because, because you're saying, I'm not going to do anything right now, I'm going to focus on the Lord. You might even bow your head as a, as a show of honor or close your eyes so you're not distracted because you're giving over yourself, you who is humble, over to the one who is powerful. A Christian woman shouldn't go to church to flaunt herself in such a way to either meet women or meet men or attract men. But rather, she goes for one purpose, to meet God. You think of all the ways, you know, you might, those of you who might be shopping around for churches, all the ways that you might go to a particular church. That's great. That's fine. There are certain things that churches provide for us to live and dwell easily together. But why do you go to church? Do you go to church to fellowship? Do you go to be a part of a good Bible study? Do you go to meet friends? Do you go to get clients? No, you go to worship God. He's the one who is exclusively to be exalted. And far too often, we can act like men. Last week, we can act like women in such a way that actually brings attention from him to us. So getting ready for church is primarily a matter of preparing the heart for prayer. A woman who loves to be noticed must remember with whom she is competing. A woman who loves to be noticed needs to compare herself with the one who she's competing against. It's God who is the only one who ought to receive all of our attention and affections in prayer. Now, when it comes to modesty, this, this word at its root actually has sexual overtones to it. It means what we, we take it to an nth degree to mean. Uh, theologian J.N.D. Kelly says it indicates feminine reserve in matters of sex. It demonstrates a woman who is faithful and honorable. It implies that women should not dress in a seductive or suggestive manner as if to bring attention on themselves. Why? Because they want all attention and glory and laud and honor to go to the one whom they are worshiping. It implies that women should dress in a certain way, one that is equipped with modesty. And this extends not only to the dress, but also to the demeanor, to the way that a woman carries herself. The other word here is self-control. It's a broader concept. So you have you have a form of humility, you have one with sexual overtones, but then you have a broader concept, self-controlled. It was, it was one of the four cardinal virtues of Platonic philosophy, so it would have captured people's attention. It means to be prudent. Being self-controlled means to be temperate. It means to be discreet. It means to have sound judgment and soberness or exercising self-mastery. It's not just that you cut out certain things, but that you own all of who God has made you. Now, by using these terms, the scripture is not telling Christian women to make sure that they're always out of style, right? This is what we all, we all come back to. Is this saying that I have to wear like a potato sack over my entire head? I, I kind of hope not, because boy, you want to, you want to, uh, anyway, all right, so what is forbidden here is not having a hairstyle or owning jewelry or wearing nice clothes, but the heart issue is what is at stake here. Using such things immodestly or indecently is what Paul is actually speaking of to Timothy to tell to this church and what Paul is actually speaking of to us. God does not want his daughters to be overly concerned with how they look. Listen to what this 
uh, 500-year-old preacher says, it's especially helpful. It says, the fault is excessive concern and eagerness about dress. Paul's wish is that their dressing should be regulated by modesty and moderation for luxury and extravagance come from a desire to make a display which can spring only from vanity and depravity. Paul attacks by name certain kinds of immoderation, such as curled hair, jewels, and golden rings. Not that jewels of gold are completely forbidden, but wherever there is a shining display of them, they tend to bring with them all evils which spring from self-concern or impurity. So what modesty means in practice may vary from culture to culture, even maybe even from family to family, as you might size yourself up. You know, my wife doesn't want me to wear a bow tie, and that's sad, because I think bow ties are awesome. Why? In her godliness, she says, you wearing a bow tie makes everyone look at your bow tie, not about the God you're preaching about. And I'm like, whew, godly woman right there. Man, I want to wear a bow tie. All right, so it'll, it'll vary on this, but the, the heart of the matter is what God, Paul is getting at. What should women do? They should adorn themselves in such a way that they are bestowing on others the God who has changed them from the inside out. Okay, so secondly here, or third on your outline, what worshiping women should not do? What worshiping women should not do? The Apostle Paul also gives instructions for the prayers of women. And since these instructions touch on women's fashion, some pastors don't like to talk about it. The passage sometimes has drawn ministers into conflict. John Christendom, the golden-tongued bishop of Constantinople, was regarded as the greatest preacher of his times, about 1,600 years ago, until, that is, he started preaching against the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Think about being the greatest orator of your time until the president or the prime minister starts listening. The empress, Eudoxia, ran him out of town and later killed him in exile because what Christendom preached in part were the very words of the Apostle Paul. That was the sermon that she first sent him out of town because of, where it says, I desire likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel and with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. And that was the antithesis of this empress. She was not known to be modest. She was not known to be self-controlled. She was not known to be lovely by the heart, but she was known to only bring attention to to herself. And it was this man who spoke these words that cost him his life. So what Paul's talking about here is not no nail appointments or salons or shopping sprees, but this verse, which very often seems so out of touch with our contemporary culture, causes us all the more reason to listen to what it does say and what it doesn't say. Very often we look at passages like this, and this is what liberal theologians do all the time in Paul's language, is they see Paul making an an assault at the heart And they say, well, that was for Paul's day. That was an instruction there. You know, they were dealing with different idols or different situations. So you and I need to discount that. What we really need to go back to are the words of Christ. You know, where he says, be kind and be generous and be nice. But in reality, that's just taking the Bible and ripping it apart altogether. Remember what Paul said when he gave these very words to these people. I'm speaking to you as an apostle. Meaning, I'm speaking to you as one speaking the words of Christ. 
like the big awesome prophets in the Old Testament who were announcing the very words of God. It's the same as 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, you and I look at this and go, man, braided hair, or no jewelry, or no golden rings. Those are kind of fun, right? Like, it's kind of, it's kind of cool around prom season to look at everyone and go, look at how way made up they are. That's really neat. Surely this is out of context. But which is more likely? The Bible is out of date or our culture is out of line? Which is more likely? The Bible isn't for us in this house? Or may we need to evaluate, is our house in line with the Bible? The words like likewise, or the word likewise in this passage is significant because it sets the context of why Paul is arguing the way he's arguing. Paul is still addressing people, the church collectively, by public worship. He spoke about men in verse 8. He spoke to all of them in verses 1 through 7. And here he speaks to women in verses 9 through 10. He assumes that women will be present in the assembly to praise God and that they'll be praying. That's the assumption here of this text. And his point is that while men are to pray without argumentation or acting like monsters, women likewise are to be modest. Not flashy, not showiness, because of what that reveals. Now, growing up, my sister and I, not that she would ever, but we were not allowed to watch professional wrestling. <laughs> and 25 years later, you might see clips of professional wrestling on Instagram, and you're just like, that is the silliest thing I've ever seen. But why are things like that, if you've got a parent over a five- or six-year-old kid, why could that possibly be so dangerous? Because the premise, I don't know why I'm giving this argumentation, but the premise for professional wrestling comes to two things. It promotes men acting like monsters which is, men, this is not how we should act. We really should not topple people from the tops of cages. We should not act like monsters. And then what does it also teach? It says that women should act like men. All, all the heroes in that fest, which shapes, let's just be honest, the culture of all of us, is purport, purporting itself in an unbiblical fashion of men acting like monsters and women acting like men. How should men act like? They should be kind. They should be generous. They shouldn't be angry. They shouldn't be belittling other people. How should women act? They should be modest because of the God who has given them everything, leaves them lacking for nothing outside of themselves. So here, it helps to know something about this society in which elaborately braided hair was a sign of extravagant luxury. Paul's wording is significant, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Uh, an author, James Hurley, helps us understand the cultural context where he says the literature of the period make it clear that women often wore their hair in enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls piled high like towers and decorated gems and or gold and or pearls. The courtesians, which is a nice way to say prostitutes, wore their hair in numerous small pendant braids with gold droplets or pearls or gems every inch or so, making a shimmering screen of their locks. It's like a walking, talking display of all attention coming to themselves. The combo of fancy hair with fancy jewelry was a sign of, in that day, vanity and narcissism. Some women spent hours fixing their hair and spangling their hair with gems. And one ancient sculpture depicts a wealthy lady in her salon pampered by four attendants, where the Jewish writer Philo used his image in describing pleasure as a woman whose hair is dressed in curious and elaborate weaves. She wears, quote, costly clothing, quote, bracelets and necklaces and every other ornament wrought of gold and jewels hanging around her. 
Now, this kind of ambition must have been a temptation for women in the Ephesian church. Some of them at least were wealthy. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And presumably, these wealthy women would have gone to the very famous Ephesian market. But later, Paul will warn them to not be self-indulgent with what they have because luxurious living must have seemed particularly inappropriate in a community where many other Christians were incredibly poor. And so excessive adornment was characteristic not only of the wealthy, but also, most importantly, of prostitutes. Excessive adornment was a characteristic not only of the wealthy, but also of the prostitutes. One historian says that the reason for Paul's prohibition of elaborate hairstyles, ornate jewelry, and extremely expensive clothing becomes clear when one reads in the contemporary literature of the inordinate time, expense, and effort that elaborately braided hair and jewels demanded not just as a pretentious display, but also as the mode of dress that concubines and harlots live and dwell. Members of the Ephesian church could see the temple prostitutes strolling near the pillars of the pagan temple as they would go to worship. And what Paul is saying is, as you pass them by, like what he said in verses 1 through 7, pray that God would bring all people to himself, but certainly don't act like them, because they're going to watch you go, And they're going to see there's nothing different from them to us. What Paul is saying is don't do that. Don't dress that way, but adorn yourself with modesty. Now, you might see this as just rules. You you might be new to the Christian faith, or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian at all, and you go, "I I thought Christianity was about a relationship, not rules. I think it's helpful that Paul actually tells us why he tells us the things he tells us. I think it's also for you and I to understand that there, there, we need to approach this text from a very particular perspective of the cross of Christ. I want to remind you of what was written about in the Exodus, where the, the Israelites were brought out of bondage and then given a life from God to live by. In the same way, you and I who have been saved from the penalty of our sins and our sinfulness, we have been saved from that, and God, for our goodness, is actually saying, hey, act like this, it will bring you more freedom. Act like this, it'll bring you more joy. We might rebel and go, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. And that's really the root of why people are opposed to things like this is because not that this is patriarchal, not that this is shaming anyone, not that this is more rules, but because at a root, you and I do not like to be told what to do. We just don't. Even if we know it's for our good. Eat your food. What happens if you don't eat your food? You die. But we want to rebel, don't we? So why is Paul telling this group of women to act in a certain way? Why does the Bible address these comments to women? It's not because women, or it's not because Christian men are permitted to be immodest or indecent, nor is it because men never acquire a taste for fashion. He's not saying that women, you need to dress a little less fancy, that way you can attract a real man. He's not saying anything like that. But the reason that women are warned about flashiness is the same reason that men are warned about argumentation. In each case, hold on to this, in each case, the Bible addresses the besetting and assailing sin. Women especially are prone to be generous towards their attention on their outward opinion, or outward appearance. This is true today as it was in Timothy's time. The fashion industry and the cosmetic industry and the jewelry industry are supported largely by women. In fact, shopping for clothes is often identified as as a leading form of recreation of American women. Yet God himself cares little or nothing for outward appearances. He wants your outward appearance to show some semblance of what he has done in your heart completely. 
Remember what he said to Samuel when he went to anoint the next king of Israel. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. For God's standards for feminine beauty, therefore stand entirely opposed to the standards of modern culture. How often do ordinary looking people appear in television advertisements? How many fashion magazines feature tips for inward beauty? The world says beauty is only skin deep, but God turns things inside out from that vantage point. He says that beauty comes from the spiritual life of the soul. Men, part of this is on us. We too often evaluate women based on their looks, either belittle them because of it or exalt them because of it, making women slave to their own appearances. Now, of course, it, it's helpful, if, for those of you who are married, it's helpful to like the way your spouse looks. But men, if you're here and you're single, or women, if you're here and you're single, people's primary appearances ought to be from the inside out, not from the outside in. We often chase one another based on how we first look and hope that their heart isn't as shabby as their outside. But in many ways, we have to remind ourselves the heart of the Lord who looks at women. God looks at them. And it's not because of their outward appearance, but because of who they are to him, their heart to them. If women want to be, become beautiful to God, here is the fashion statement that she ought to make, that she ought to adorn herself with what is proper for women who profess godliness and good works. Some of the good deeds Paul has in mind are listed in chapter 5. What makes a woman beautiful? Her care of children, her showing hospitality, her washing the feet of saints, her caring for the afflicted, and devoting, oneself to every, devoting herself to every good work. These are God's beauty tips for women. You can imagine that, ma that magazine article coming down from heaven where he says, here's what it looks like to pursue godliness in my femininity. A woman who adorns herself with good works always has suitable attire. And so the Holy Spirit makes the same point in one of the Bible's other fashion sections. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. The way to become more attractive, according to the scriptures, <laughs> now I have your attention, isn't it? The way to become more attractive is through godliness, not gaudiness. The way to become more attractive is, not through, is through godliness, not godliness. A woman is made beautiful by what she does, not what she wears. And this means that the older a woman gets, the more beautiful she can become. I was at a uh, burger joint in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2010, where I struck up a conversation with a Hindu man who was much older than me. And we were, he, he asked me, are you married? And I said, no, I don't want to talk about it. And he started talking about his wife and on and on. We talked a little bit about religion, but he says... He says, when you get married, uh, do what I was taught to do. Remind your wife of what she finds harsh about her, wrinkles, falling out of hair, not looking like she once looked. Remind her of that is all of the season that God has put into her heart. My wife's, this, this man's talking to me, giving me a lecture, and I'm like, I'm just here for a cheeseburger. He's telling me, my wife's, my wife's wrinkles remind me of the heartache and the joy of her raising our kids. My wife's scars remind me of the work that she put in to the glory of our family. 
And it was great to be able to talk to him of like, man, that's, that's actually a Christian ideal. That's not something that you would have picked up in your own worship in that religion. That, that's actually something that comes from our God in the scriptures, where he honors with women not by how they adorn themselves, but the action that they take because of an inward heart that is setting themselves for the sake of other people. Outwardly, the aging process cannot be reversed, but the inward process of a woman becoming more godly, becoming more beautiful, go hand in hand. True beauty comes from nurturing the inward woman. Maybe you could ask questions like these. How much money do I spend on my appearance in clothes, jewelry, or cosmetics, beauty treatments, and the like? And how does that compare with my giving to the Lord's work? How much time do I spend in front of a mirror, and how much time do I spend on my knees in prayer? When a Christian woman does look in the mirror, she should look for good works. When we praise other women around us, and especially our spouses or daughters, are we exalting how they look, or even at the worldly achievements that they've had, or the good works that only come from a heart that pursues the Lord, which are the proof of genuine faith in Christ Jesus? John Stott says it, I think rightly, that the church should be a real beauty parlor. <laughs> I mean, imagine how much, how much uh, attention we would get in the uh, Enid newspaper if we were saying, Cross Point Church is opening up a parlor for women. We could have a lot of visitors in that next Sunday, wouldn't we? But what if that parlor was because we encouraged its women members to adorn themselves with good deeds? And where women need to remember that if nature has made them plain, Grace makes them beautiful, and good deeds can add to their beauty. Good works are what a man should aspire to bring glory to the women that God has placed him around. When a, when a man notices a woman who is devoted to the Lord, who gives good counsel, who handles her professional work with integrity, who loves children, who cares for the sick, and who feeds the poor, he should say, that is beauty. When Brooke and I were dating uh, for two weeks, I got a text from my father-in-law at 8.11 in the morning. Not that I would ever forget it. And he said, Asher, you're not in trouble, but we need to have coffee. I thought, my whole day is yours. And uh, at the church I was working at at the time, they lived in the neighborhood just to the south, so he said, can you meet at Starbucks at 8.30? And so we got there and met, and you can imagine just the awkward standing in line with what would be your girl, I think you were at the time, she was my girlfriend, girlfriend's dad, and he's like, what kind of coffee do you like? I'm like, black. And he's like, okay. And I'm like, what does that mean? We get our coffee, we sit down, he goes right into it, and he says, well, I know that you've been dating Brooke, and I said, yes, I hope that's okay, and he said, I, I, just, I just have a question for you. Um, my job is to protect my daughter, body and soul, and I want to know if you're going to join me in that, and I thought, I would like to, <laughs> and I think I can, and he said, I, I just want to tell you that I very often... I very often never tell Brooke that she's beautiful. I very often never tell her that she's beautiful because I don't want her to be trapped like fathers trap their daughters on the outward appearance. I always tell Brooke that she's lovely because loveliness is a quality of the heart. And I was like, that's really good advice. So I went home and I said, Brooke, you are beautiful and lovely. And <laughs> in John Bunyan's, let me close with this, in John Bunyan's classical allegorical novel, The Pilgrim's Progress, there's a scene where a character defames another for their appearance and behavior. This scene occurs in part one of the book during Christian, the main, the main person's journey, to the celestial city where Christian, the protagonist, encounters a character named Formalist in the town called Vanity Fair. Christian encounters formalist and Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair is a bustling 
marketplace that symbolizes the world's materialistic and superficial values. Christian and faithful, his fellow pilgrim who's going with him, are on a quest for spiritual enlightenment. But the people of Vanity Fair regard them with suspicion and disdain. And in the midst of the chaos, formalist of the town, the resident of Vanity Fair, approaches Christian and faithful, formalist, known for his outward religiosity but lack of genuine faith, criticizes these two pilgrims because of their plain and simple attire. He mocks their humble appearance, suggesting that their attire reflects a lack of sophistication and prosperity. However, Christian responds with wisdom and insight. He rebukes formalists, pointing out that true faith and genuine spirituality are not dependent on outward appearances or material wealth. He emphasizes the importance of a sincere heart and genuine relationship with God rather than focusing on superficial displays of religiosity. Christian's response exposes the shallowness of formalists. And for our case today, it exposes the shallowness of the world with a judgmental attitude and highlights the true essence of faith. This scene serves as a reminder of that true spirituality that transcends appearances and that one's inner character and relationship with God hold a far greater significance than internal trappings. Friends, our command from this word is to take very good care of reminding ourselves of what God has done and taking very good care of living like it actually happened to us, not being concerned with the value that the world can place on us. If the world places beauty, it is not for us to pursue that sense of beauty so that we would have the opportunity to display to them what God can also do for them. That's the heart behind this text. Let's pray together.